0: Elder Anderson, we extend our love, blessings, and support as you fill this new calling. Brothers and sisters, individuals, and families across the world are challenged by the current conditions. While I believe there are serious challenges ahead, I also know that this is a wonderful time to be alive, especially for the youth. I see my children grandchildren having full, satisfying lives even as they face challenges, setbacks, and obstacles which they'll overcome. These are the days when prophecies are being fulfilled. We live in the dispensation of the fullness of times, which is the time to prepare for the Savior's return. It's also the time to work out our own salvation. When the winds blow and the rains pour, they blow and pour on all. Those who have built their foundations on bedrock rather than sand survive the storms. There is a way to build on bedrock by developing a deep personal conversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ and knowing how to receive inspiration. We must know and know that we know. We must stand spiritually and temporally independent of all worldly creatures. This begins by understanding that God the Father is the Father of our spirits and that He loves us, that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer and Savior, and that the Holy Ghost can communicate with our minds and our hearts. This is how we receive inspiration. We need to learn how to recognize and apply these promptings. When I was a young man in high school, one of my passions was American football. I played middle linebacker. The coach worked the team hard to teach us basics. We practiced until those skills became natural and automatic. During one play against our biggest rival, I had an experience that has helped me over the years. We were on defense. I knew my assigned opponent, and was as the play unfolded, he moved to my right into the line of scrimmage. There was a lot of noise from players and fans. I reacted as the coach had taught us and followed my man into the line, not knowing if he had the ball. To my surprise, I felt the ball partially in my hands. I gave it a tug, but he didn't let go. As we tugged back and forth amid the noise, I heard a voice yelling, Packer, tackle him. That was enough to bring me to my senses, so I dropped him on the spot. I have wondered how I heard that voice above all the other noise. I had become acquainted with the voice of the coach during the practices, and I had learned to trust it. I knew that what he taught worked. We need to be acquainted with the promptings of the Holy Ghost. We need to practice and apply gospel principles until they become natural and automatic. These promptings become the foundation of our testimonies when then our testimonies can keep us happy and safe in troubled times. Elder Dallin H. Oaks defined a testimony this way. A testimony is a personal witness borne to our souls by the Holy Ghost that certain facts of eternal significance are true and that we know them to be true. At another time, he said, to know and to feel Testimony is to know and to feel. Conversion is to do and become. There are things we can do to develop a deep conversion and learn how to receive inspiration. First, we must have a desire. Alma said, For I know that he granteth unto men according to their desires, whether it be unto death or unto life, according to their wills. Next, Alma challenged us to experiment on the word. We will compare the word unto a seed. Now if you give a place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if you do not cast it out by your unbelief, that you will resist the spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell within your breasts. And when you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourselves, It must needs be that this is a good seed, or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul, yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding, yea, it beginneth to become delicious to me. To study and to learn is the next step. This includes pondering and broadening, which broadens and deepens our testimonies. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your minds, that you must ask me if it be right. We can learn how to receive answers, how answers come through inspiration. They come as thoughts and feelings to our minds and hearts. Occasionally answers may come as a burning in the bosom. Elijah taught that answers come as a still, small voice. The Lord said, And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore ye shall not feel that it is right. Joseph Smith told us to watch for answers by paying attention to the thoughts and feelings that come into our minds. Over time, we will learn to recognize those promptings. He said, a person may profit by noticing the first intimation of the Spirit of Revelation, for instance, when we feel pure intelligence flowing into you. It may give you sudden strokes of ideas, so that by noticing it you may feel it fu- find it fulfilled the same day or soon. That is, those things which were presented into your minds by the Spirit of God will, be co- will come to pass— and thus by learning the Spirit of God and understanding it, you may grow into the principle of revelation until you become perfect in Christ Jesus. In developing this capacity helps us gain testimonies and becomes the means for obtaining additional inspiration in the future. While testimonies can come as dramatic manifestations, they usually do not. Sometimes people feel they need to have an experience like Joseph Smith's vision before they gain testimonies. If we have unrealistic expectations of how, when, or where answers come, we risk missing the answers which come as quiet, reassuring feelings and thoughts which most often come after our prayers while we are doing something else. These answers can be equally convincing and powerful. Over time, we will receive answers and learn how inspiration comes. This is something each person learns for himself. Next, asking for a testimony of truth opens the window of inspiration. Prayer is the most common, powerful way to invite inspiration. Merely asking a question, even in our minds, will start to open the window. The scriptures teach, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Jesus also taught us to apply the doctrine in our lives. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In time, a personal witness will come, and we will know and know that we know. We will then be independent of all other worldly things, for by the power of the Holy Ghost we may know the truth of all things which are right and expedient for us. We will receive strength, comfort, and help to make good decisions and act with confidence in troubled times. This witness is not limited to leaders, but is available to all men, women, youth, and even little children. Having the capacity to receive personal inspiration will be necessary in the coming days. As a youth, I learned that testimony could grow by fulfilling my priesthood duties. I had a desire to know. I studied and pondered. I prayed for answers. One day, while sitting at the sacrament table as a priest, I felt and I knew. This is a great time to be alive. The Lord needs each of us. This is our day. It is our time. From one of our hymns we read, Rise up, O men, and I add women of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. I bear testimony that our Heavenly Father, the Father of our spirits, is the Father of our spirits, of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Savior, and that the Holy Ghost, who is the means through which we receive divine guidance, I bear testimony that we can personally receive inspiration. May we know the voice through which that inspiration comes, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: This mortal life can constitute a difficult journey, but the destination is truly glorious. Christ expressed this to His disciples. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. My objective this afternoon is twofold. First, to address some stumbling blocks to faith, and second, to describe how our Father's plan is big enough for all His children. During the past two years in the United States and across the world, there has been a dramatic increase in the discussion of our faith and beliefs. This is not new. It has happened periodically throughout the history of the Church. In 1863, Charles Dickens, the English novelist, went on board the passenger ship Amazon, which was bound for New York. His purpose was to report on the Latter-day Saint converts who were emigrating to build up the Church in the American West. There had been thousands of converts who had already emigrated, and much had been written, particularly in the British media, about them and their beliefs. Most of what was written was unfavorable. "'I went on board their ship,' wrote Dickens." To bear testimony against them if they deserved it, as I fully believed they would. To my great astonishment, they did not deserve it. After observing and mingling with the converts, Dickens was impressed with them and described these English converts, most of whom were laborers, as being, in their degree, the pick and flower of England. There have been two contrasting reports with respect to the Church. On one hand, righteous members and the way they live their lives have generally been reported on favorably. Those who know Latter-day Saints personally or have the opportunity to observe them up close have the same view that Charles Dickens reported over 150 years ago. Because of the uplifting doctrine of the Restoration, members rejoice in the gospel and find joy and satisfaction in the Church. We are viewed favorably when we live the teachings of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. When members don't live the teachings, it can be a stumbling block to those who do not belong to the Church. Unlike the favorable reports on righteous members, descriptions of the Church and its doctrine have often been untrue, unfair, and harsh. It should be acknowledged that some descriptions of Christianity in general have also been very harsh. This attitude toward our doctrine does not come as a surprise. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord indicated that there would be some who lift up their voices and curse God, and some turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. Recent bus ads in London demonstrate the polarization that exists concerning religion in general. Some atheists, agnostics, and non-believers paid to display large posters on red double-decker buses in London that said, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Opposing ads by Christians asserted, there definitely is a God, followed by uplifting messages. Non-believers find it hard to accept the miracles of the Old and New Testaments and the Savior's virgin birth and resurrection. They view these events with the same skepticism as the appearance of God the Father and Jesus Christ to the Prophet Joseph Smith. They are not open to the possibility of a heavenly plan presided over by a supreme being. They do not have faith. My principal concern is for the honorable people on the earth who are open to religious faith but have been discouraged or confused by incorrect doctrine. For instance, with respect to the doctrine that revelation still exists, some very good people have been confident that the Church could not be true because they have been taught and therefore believe that the heavens are closed and there will be no additional revelation, no scripture, and no pronouncements from heaven. Let me emphasize that this widely held belief is not scriptural, but it is a stumbling block to some. In a recent best-selling book, the author uses as his principal analogy the interesting fact that for centuries, all Europeans believed that all swans were white. It wasn't until the discovery of Australia that swans of a different color were discovered. The author uses this analogy to help explain events which have actually occurred but were not expected. As I thought about this analogy, I realized that many people have refused to seriously investigate the Church because they believe there can be no revelation in this dispensation. One convert, who is now serving as a mission president, describes how difficult this was for him when he was investigating the Church. He said, I had been taught all my life that there would never again be prophets and apostles here upon the earth. So to accept Joseph Smith as a prophet created a large stumbling block. However, when he prayed, he states, I received a witness that, in fact, the gospel had been restored to the earth and that Joseph Smith was truly a prophet of God. For many of these people who are open to religious faith, one issue has been particularly troubling. They have had a difficult time reconciling the correct doctrine that we have a loving Father in heaven and the incorrect doctrine that most of mankind would be doomed to eternal hell. This was an issue with my great-great-grandfather, Phineas Walcott Cook. He was born in 1820 in Connecticut. In his diary, he notes that he had made a covenant with the Lord to serve him if he could find the right way. He attended many churches, and at one was asked to testify, join the Church, be a Christian. His response was he could not tell which one to join. There were so many. One doctrine that was of particular significance to him was sometimes they found fault with me because I wanted a more liberal salvation for the family of man. I could not believe the Lord had made a part to be saved and a great part to be damned to all eternity. Because of this doctrine, he allowed his name to be taken off the records of one Protestant religion. When the LDS missionaries taught him the true doctrine of the plan of salvation in 1844, he was baptized. Phineas' faith in the loving mercy of the Lord and his plan of happiness has been prominent among many honorable men and women, even when the teachings of their own churches were very bleak. The Anglican Church leader and classical scholar Frederick Farrar, the author of The Life of Christ, lamented in lectures in Westminster Abbey that the common teachings of the Protestant Church with respect to hell were incorrect. He asserted that a definition of hell which included endless torment and everlasting damnation was the result of translation errors from Hebrew and Greek to English in the King James Version of the Bible— Farrar also noted the overwhelming demonstration of a loving Father in Heaven throughout the Bible as additional evidence that the definitions of hell and damnation used in the English translation were incorrect. Lord Tennyson, in his poem In Memoriam, expressed his heartfelt sentiment after noting that we trust that somehow good will be the final goal of ill, he continued, that nothing walks with aimless feet that not one life shall be destroyed or cast as rubbish to the void when God hath made the pile complete. At the time Joseph Smith received revelations and organized the Church, the vast majority of churches taught that the Savior's Atonement would not bring about the salvation of most of mankind. The common precept was that a few would be saved and the overwhelming majority would be doomed to endless tortures of the most awful and unspeakable intensity. The marvelous doctrine revealed to the Prophet Joseph unveiled to us a plan of salvation that is applicable to all mankind, including those who do not hear of Christ in this life, children who die before the age of accountability, and those who have no understanding. At death, righteous spirits live in a temporary state called paradise. Alma the Younger teaches us paradise is a state of rest, a state of peace where the righteous shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. The unrighteous spirits dwell in spirit prison, sometimes referred to as hell. It is described as an awful place, a dark place, where those fearful of the indignation of the wrath of God shall remain until the resurrection. However, because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, all spirits blessed by birth will ultimately be resurrected, spirit and body reunited, and inherit kingdoms of glory that are superior to our existence here on earth. The exceptions are confined to those who, like Satan and his angels, willfully rebel against God. At the resurrection, the spirit prison, or hell, will deliver up its captive spirits. Jesus came into the world to be crucified for the world and to bear the sins of the world and to sanctify the world and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness. The Savior said, Let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. A succinct summary is provided in the book of Moses. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. After all the Savior has suffered for mankind, it is not surprising that in speaking of existing churches in the first vision, he would instruct Joseph to join none of them, they were all wrong. The Savior subsequently ushered in the restoration of his true doctrine with respect to the plan of salvation and other saving principles such as the doctrine of Christ. But notwithstanding, the significance of our doctrinal differences with other Christian faiths. Our attitude toward other churches has been to refrain from criticism. They do much good. They bless mankind. Many help their members learn of the Savior and His teachings. A reporter for The Washington Post visited one of our Church meetings in Nigeria. The reporter interviewed one new member and told of his conversion. The reporter states, He said he jumped off a city bus and walked into the LDS church building. He immediately liked what he heard inside the chapel, especially that no one preached that people of other faiths were going to hell. This echoes the feeling of numerous converts to the Church since its organization. Our leaders have consistently counseled us to live with respect and appreciation for those not of our faith. There is so great a need for civility and mutual respect among those of differing beliefs and philosophies. It is equally important that we be loving and kind to members of our own faith, regardless of their level of commitment or activity. The Savior has made it clear that we are not to judge each other. This is especially true of members of our own families. Our obligation is to love And teach and never give up. The Lord has made salvation free for all men, but has commanded his people that they should persuade all men to repentance. The desire of our hearts, of course, is not only to acquire salvation and immortality, but also to attain eternal life with the loving Father in heaven and our Savior in the celestial kingdom with our families. We can obtain eternal life only through obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Those early European converts that Dickens met on board the ship Amazon had overcome many stumbling blocks. They had a testimony that revelation comes from heaven and that prophets and apostles are again on the earth. They had faith in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. They had come to understand the sublime destination that was in store for them. They were not fearful of the arduous journey they were undertaking, and their ultimate destination was not really the Salt Lake Valley. Their true destination was paradise, followed by exaltation in the celestial kingdom. That is why Latter-day Saints then and now sing the last verse of "Come Come Ye Saints with Faith and Expectation. And should we die before our journey's through, happy day, all is well. We then are free from toil and sorrow too, with the just we shall dwell. A loving Father has provided a comprehensive and compassionate plan for His children that saves the living, redeems the dead, rescues the damned, and glorifies all who repent. Even though our journey may be fraught with tribulation, the destination is truly glorious. I rejoice in the great plan of salvation that is big enough for all of our Father in Heaven's children. I express gratitude beyond my ability to articulate for the Atonement of Jesus Christ. I bear witness of Him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
2: We live in a fascinating and sometimes bewildering time. The other day, I mentioned to one of my grandsons that I was going over the text of my conference talk. His face reflected his confusion. You're going to text your conference talk? (laughs) I thought you had to give that in the conference center. While some texting would be easier, I'm grateful for this opportunity today to speak because I have a message I feel is important for that grandson and for my other grandchildren, as well as for all of the youth of the Church. Years ago, when I was in business, I learned a very expensive lesson because I did not listen carefully to the counsel of my father, nor did I heed the promptings of the Spirit giving me guidance from my Heavenly Father. My father and I were in the automobile business, and the Ford Motor Company was looking for dealers to sell their new line of cars. Ford executives invited my father and me to a preview showing of what they thought to be a spectacularly successful product. When we saw the cars, my father, who had over 35 years' experience, in the business cautioned me about becoming a dealer. However, the Ford sales personnel were very persuasive, and I chose to become Salt Lake City's first and actually last Edsel dealer. And if you don't know what an Edsel is, ask your grandpa, and he'll tell you that the Edsel was a spectacular failure. Now, there's a powerful lesson for all of you in this experience. When you are willing to listen and learn, some of life's most meaningful teachings come from those who have gone before you. They have walked where you are walking and have experienced many of the things you are experiencing. If you listen and respond to their counsel, they can help guide you toward choices that will be for your benefit and blessing and steer you away from decisions that can destroy you. As you look to your parents and others who have gone before you, you will find examples of faith, commitment, hard work, dedication, and sacrifice that you should strive to duplicate. It is hard to imagine a scenario in which it would not be worthwhile to consider and learn from the experience of others. Many professions require internships during which aspiring professionals shadow seasoned veterans to learn from their years of experience and accumulated wisdom rookies in professional sports are often expected to sit on the bench and learn by watching experienced players new missionaries are assigned to work with a senior companion whose experience helps the new missionary learn the right way to effectively serve the Lord. Of course, there are times when we have no choice but to venture out on our own and do the best we can at figuring things out as we go along. For example, there are not a lot of people in my generation whose experience can help when it comes to the most modern of technologies. When we have problems with modern technology, We must look for someone who knows more about that than we do, which usually means turning to one of you young people. It is my message and testimony to you today, my young friends, that for the most important questions of your eternal lives, there are answers in the scriptures and in the words and testimonies of apostles and prophets. The fact that these words come largely from older men, past and present, doesn't make them any less relevant. In fact, it makes their words even more valuable to you because they come from those who have learned much through years of devout living. There is a famous saying attributed to George Santana. You've probably heard it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. There are, in fact, several different variations of this quote, including those who do not remember the past are doomed to repeat it. But regardless of the exact language, the sentiment is profound. There are great lessons to be learned from the past, and you ought to learn them so that you don't exhaust your spiritual strength repeating past mistakes and bad choices. You don't have to be a Latter-day Saint. You don't even have to be religious to see the repeating pattern of history in the lives of God's children as recorded in the Old Testament. Time and again we see the cycle of righteousness followed by wickedness. Similarly, the Book of Mormon records that ancient civilizations of this continent followed exactly the same pattern—righteousness followed by prosperity, followed by material comforts, followed by greed, followed by pride, followed by wickedness, and a collapse of morality until the people brought calamities upon themselves sufficient to stir them up to humility, repentance, and change. In the relatively short span of years covered by the New Testament, the historic pattern repeats itself again. This time the people turned against Christ and His apostles. The collapse was so great, we have come to know it as the great apostasy, which led to the centuries of spiritual stagnation and ignorance called the Dark Ages. Now I need to be very clear about these historically reoccurring periods of apostasy and spiritual darkness. Our Heavenly Father loves all of His children, and He wants them all to have the blessings of the gospel in their lives. Spiritual light is not lost because God turns His back on His children. Rather, it results when His children turn their collective backs on Him. Spiritual darkness is a natural consequence of bad choices made by individuals, communities, countries, and entire civilizations. This has been proven again and again throughout the course of time. One of the great lessons of this historical pattern is that our choices, both individually and collectively, do result in spiritual consequences for ourselves and for our posterity in every dispensation god's loving desire to bless his children is manifest in the miraculous restoration of the gospel truth to the earth through living prophets the restoration of the gospel through the prophet joseph smith in the early 1800s is the only is only the most recent Example, similar restorations were accomplished in earlier times through such prophets as Noah, Abraham, Moses, and, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The 179 years that have passed since the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was officially organized organized, have been extraordinary by any measure— Never in recorded history has there been a period such remarkable progress in terms of science and technology. These advances have helped to facilitate gospel growth and expansion throughout the world. They have also contributed to the rise of materialism and self-indulgence and to the decline of morality. We live in an era when the boundaries of good taste and public decency are being pushed to the point where there are no boundaries at all. The commandments of God have taken a beating in the vacillating marketplace of ideas that absolutely rejects the notion of right and wrong. Certain factions of society seem generally mistrusted of anyone who chooses to live according to religious belief. And when people of faith attempt to warn others of the possible consequences of their sinful choices, they are scoffed at and ridiculed, and their most sacred rights and cherished values are publicly mocked. Does any of this sound familiar, my young brothers and sisters? Do you see the historical pattern emerging again—the pattern of righteousness, followed by prosperity, followed by material comforts, followed by greed, followed by pride, followed by wickedness and a collapse of morality—the same pattern we have seen again and again within the pages of the Old and New Testaments and the Book of Mormon. More importantly, what— impact will the lessons of the past have on the personal choices you make right now and for the rest of your lives? The voice of the Lord is clear and unmistakable. He knows you. He loves you. He wants you to be eternally happy. But according to your God-given agency, the choice is yours. Each one of you has to decide for yourselves if you're going to ignore the past and suffer the painful mistakes and tragic pitfalls that have befallen previous generations, experiencing for yourself the devastating consequences of bad choices, how much better your life will be if you will follow the noble example of the faithful followers of Christ, such as the sons of Helaman, Moroni, Joseph Smith and the stalwart pioneers, and choose, as they did, to remain faithful to your Heavenly Father's commandments. With all my heart, I hope and pray that you will be wise enough to learn the lessons of the past. You don't have to spend time as a layman or a lemuel in order to know that it is much better to be a Nephi or a Jacob. You don't have to follow the path of Cain or Gadianton in order to realize that wickedness never was happiness. And you don't have to allow your community to become like Sodom or Gomorrah in order to understand that that isn't a good place to raise a family. Learning the lessons of the past allows you to walk boldly in the light without running the risk of stumbling in the darkness. This is the way it is supposed to work. This is God's plan, father and mother, grandfather and grandmother, teaching their children, children learning from them, and then becoming a more righteous generation through their own personal experiences and opportunities. Learning the lessons of the past allow you to build personal testimony on a solid bedrock of obedience, faith, and the witness of the Spirit. Of course, it is not enough to learn these lessons as a matter of history and culture. Learning the names and dates and sequence of events from the printed page won't help you very much unless the meaning and the message are written in your hearts. Nourished by testimony and watered with faith, the lessons of the past can take root in your hearts and become a vibrant part of who you are. And so it returns, as it always does, to your own personal faith and testimony. That's the difference maker, my young brothers and sisters. That is how you know. That is how you avoid the mistakes of the past and take your spirituality to the next level. If you are open and receptive to the whisperings of the Holy Spirit in your lives, you will understand the lessons of the past, and they will be burned into your souls by the power of your testimonies. And how do you get such a testimony? Well, there is no new technology for that, nor will there ever be. You cannot do a Google search to gain a testimony. You can't text message faith. You gain a vibrant, life-changing testimony today the same way it has always been done. The process hasn't been changed. It comes through a desire, study, prayer, obedience, and service. That is why the teachings of the prophets and apostles, past and present, are as relevant to your life today as they have ever been that you may find joy and happiness and peace in the future by learning the great and eternal lessons of the past is my prayer for each one of you, for my grandchildren and all of the youth of the Church, wherever you may be, which I offer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As have others I... Extend to
3: Elder Anderson a warm welcome to his calling and assure him that I have had a witness that he is called of God, and he will need that reassurance in the days ahead. My beloved brothers and sisters, this opportunity to speak to you is a great and sacred privilege. I pray that my words may be helpful and give you encouragement. With all the differences in our lives, we have at least one challenge in common. We all must deal with adversity. There may be periods, sometimes long ones, when our lives seem to flow with little difficulty. But it is in the nature of our being human that comfort gives way to distress, periods of good health come to an end, and misfortunes arrive. Particularly when the comfortable times have gone on for a while, the arrival of suffering or the loss of material security can bring fear and sometimes even anger. The anger comes, at least in part, from a feeling what is happening is unfair. The good health and the serene sense of being secure can become to seem deserved and natural. When they vanish, a feeling of injustice can come. Even a brave man I knew wept and cried out in his physical suffering to those who ministered to him. I have always tried to be good, how could this happen? That aching for an answer of, how could this happen, becomes even more painful when those struggling include those we love. And it is especially hard for us to accept when those afflicted seem to us to be blameless. Then the distress can shake faith in the reality of a loving and all-powerful God. Some of us have seen such doubt come to infect a whole generation of people in times of war or famine. Such doubt can grow and spread until some may turn away from God, whom they charge with being indifferent or cruel. And if unchecked, Those feelings can lead to loss of faith, that there is a God at all. My purpose today is to assure you that our Heavenly Father and the Savior live and that they love all humanity. The very opportunity for us to face adversity and affliction is part of the evidence of their infinite love. God gave us the gift of living in mortality so that we could be prepared to receive the greatest of all the gifts of God, which is eternal life. Then our spirits will be changed. We will become able to want what God wants, to think as He thinks, and thus be prepared for the trust of an endless posterity to teach, and to lead, through tests to be raised up, to qualify, to live forever in eternal life. It is clear that for us to have that gift and to be given that trust, we must be transformed through making righteous choices where that is hard to do. We are prepared for so great a trust by passing through trying and testing experiences in mortality. That education can come only as we are subject to trials, while serving God and others for Him. In this education, we experience misery and happiness, sickness and health, the sadness from sin and the joy of forgiveness. That forgiveness can come only through the infinite Atonement of the Savior, which He worked out through pain we could not bear and which we can only faintly comprehend. It will comfort us when we must wait in distress for the Savior's promised relief that He knows from experience how to heal, and help us. The Book of Mormon gives us the certain assurance of his power to comfort. And faith in that power will give us patience as we pray and work and wait for help. The Savior could have known how to succor us simply by revelation, but He chose to learn by His own personal experience. Here is the account from Alma. And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith, he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind the people And He will take upon Him their infirmities, that His bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that He may know according to the flesh how to succor His people according to their infirmities. Now the Spirit knoweth all things. Nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that He might take upon Him the sins of His people, so that He might blot out their transgressions, according to the power of his deliverance. And now, behold, this is the testimony which is in me." Even when you feel the truth of that capacity and kindness of the Lord to deliver you in your trials, it may still test your courage and strength to endure. The Prophet Joseph Smith cried out in agony in a dungeon. O God, where art thou, and where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed, and thine eye, yea, thy pure eye? Behold from the heavens the wrongs of thy people and of thy servants, and thine ear be penetrated with their cries. The Lord's reply has helped me and can encourage us all in times of darkness. Here it is. My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes, thy friends to stand by thee. And they shall hail thee again with warm hearts and friendly hands. Thou art not yet as Job. Thy friends do not contend against thee, neither charge thee with transgression, as they did Job. I have seen faith and courage come from a testimony that it is true that we are being prepared for eternal life. The Lord will rescue His faithful disciples, and the disciple who accepts a trial as an invitation to grow and therefore qualify for eternal life can find peace in the midst of the struggle. I spoke recently to a young father who has lost his job in the recent economic crisis. He knows that hundreds of thousands of people with exactly his skills are looking desperately for work to feed their families. His quiet confidence led me to ask him what he had done to become so confident that he would find a way to support his family. He said he had examined his life to be sure that he had done all he could to be worthy of the Lord's help. It was clear that his need and his faith in Jesus Christ was leading him to be obedient to God's commandments when it was hard to do. He said that he saw that opportunity as he and his wife were reading in Alma, where the Lord had prepared a people to find the gospel through adversity. You remember the moment when Alma turned to the man who led the people in distress. The man told him that they had been persecuted and rejected for their poverty. And the record goes. And now when Alma heard this, he turned him about. His face immediately towards him, and he beheld with great joy, for he beheld that their afflictions had truly humbled them, and that they were in preparation to hear the word. Therefore he did say no more to the other multitude, but he stretched forth his hand and cried unto those whom he beheld who were the truly penitent, and said unto them, I behold that ye are lowly in heart, and if so... Blessed are ye." The scripture goes on to praise those of us who prepared for adversity in the more prosperous times. Many of you had the faith to try to qualify for the help you now need before the crisis came. Alma continued, Yea, he that truly humbleth himself and repenteth of his sins and endureth to the end, the same shall be blessed, yea, much more blessed than they who are compelled to be humble because of their exceeding poverty. That young man with whom I spoke recently was one who had done more than put away food and little savings for the misfortune which living prophets had warned would come. He had begun to prepare his heart to be worthy of the Lord's help, help which he knew he would in the near future need. When I asked his wife on the day he lost his job if she was worried, she said with cheerfulness in her voice, no, we've just come from the bishop's office. <laughs> we are full tithe pairs. Now, it is still too early to tell, but I felt assured, as they seemed to be assured, things will work out. Tragedy did not erode their faith. It tested it and strengthened it. And the feeling of peace the Lord has promised has already been delivered in the midst of the storm. Other, other miracles are sure to follow. The Lord always suits the relief to the person in need to best strengthen and purify them often it will come in the inspiration to to do what might seem especially hard for the person who needs help themselves. One of the great trials of life is losing to death a beloved husband or wife. President Hinckley described the hurt when Sister Hinckley was no longer at his side. The Lord knows the needs of those separated from loved ones by death. He saw the pain of widows and knew of their needs from His earthly experience. He asked a beloved apostle from the agony of the cross to care for His widowed mother, who would now lose a son. He now feels the needs of husbands who lose their wives and the needs of wives who are left alone by death. Most of us know widows who need attention. What teaches me is to hear as I have, of an older widow whom I was intending to visit again as soon as I could get the time, I thought, having been inspired to visit a younger widow to comfort her. A widow needing comfort herself was sent to comfort another. The Lord helped and blessed two widows by inspiring them to encourage each other. So He gave succor to them both. The Lord sent help in that same way to the humble poor in Alma 34, who had responded to the teaching and testimony of His servants. Once they had repented and were converted, they were still poor. But He sent them to do for others what they might reasonably have thought was beyond them and which they still needed. They were to give others what they would have hoped He would give them. Through His servant, the Lord gave these poor converts this hard task. After ye have done all these things, if ye turn away the needy and the naked, and visit not the sick and afflicted, and impart of your substance, if ye have, to those who stand in need, I say unto you, If ye do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain, and availeth you nothing. Ye are as hypocrites who do deny the faith." That may seem much to ask of people in such great need themselves. But I know young, one young man who was inspired to do that very thing early in his marriage. He and his wife were barely getting by on a tiny budget. But he saw another couple, even poorer than they were. To the surprise of his wife, he gave help to them from their scanty finances. A promised blessing of peace came while they were still in their poverty. The blessing of prosperity beyond their fondest dreams came later, and the pattern of seeing someone in need, someone with less or in pain. Has never ceased. There is yet another trial which, when endured well, can bring blessings in this life and blessings forever. Age and illness can test the best of us. My friend served as our bishop when my daughters were still at home. They speak of what they felt when he bore his simple testimony around campfires in the mountains. He loved them, and they knew it. He was released as our bishop. He had served as a bishop before in another state. Those that I have met who were from his earlier ward remember him as my daughters do. I visited him in his home from time to time to thank him and to give him priesthood blessings. His health began a slow decline. I can't remember all the ailments he suffered. He needed surgery. He was in constant pain. Yet every time I visited him to give him comfort, he turned the tables. I always was the one comforted. His back and legs forced him to use a cane to walk. Yet there he was in church, always sitting near the door where he could greet those arriving early with a smile. I will never forget the feeling of wonder and admiration which came over me when I opened the back door at our home And saw him coming up our driveway. It was the day we put out our garbage cans to be picked up by city workers. I had put the can out in the morning, but there he was, dragging my garbage can up the hill with one hand while he balanced himself with a cane in his other hand. He was giving me the help he thought I needed when he needed it far more than I did, and he was helping with a smile And without being asked, I visited him when he finally had to be cared for by nurses and doctors. He was lying in a hospital bed, still in pain and still smiling. His wife had called me to say that he was getting weaker. My son and I gave him a priesthood blessing as he lay in the bed with tubes and bottles connected to him. I sealed the blessing with a promise they would have time and the strength to do all that God had for him to do in this life—to pass every test. He stretched out his hand to grasp mine as I stepped away from his bed to leave. I was surprised at the strength of his grip and the firmness in his voice when he said, I am going to make it. I left, thinking that I would see him again soon. But the phone call came within a day. He was gone to the glorious place where he will see the Savior, who is his perfect judge, and will be ours. As I spoke at his funeral, I thought of the words of Paul when he knew that he would go to that place where my neighbor and friend has gone. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, shall give me at that day, and not me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing I have confidence that my neighbor made it through his trial and will face his judge with a joyous smile. I bear you my testimony that God the Father lives. He set a course for each of us that can polish and perfect us to be with Him. I testify that the Savior lives. His atonement makes possible our being purified as we keep His commandments and our sacred covenants. And I know from my own experience that He can and will give us strength to rise through every trial. President Monson is the Lord's prophet. He holds all the keys of the priesthood. This is the Lord's true Church in which we are with Him, lifting each other, and are being blessed to succor the fellow-sufferers He places in our way. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
4: May I extend a warm and sincere welcome to Elder Neil L. Anderson to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He is a worthy and welcome addition. On August 15, 2007, Peru suffered a massive earthquake that all but destroyed the coastal cities of Pisco and Chincha. Like many other Church leaders and members, Wenceslao Conde, the president of the Balconcito branch of the church in Chincha, immediately set about helping others whose homes were damaged. Four days after the earthquake, Elder Marcus B. Nash of the Seventy was in Chincha helping to coordinate the church's relief efforts there and met President Conde. As they talked about the destruction that had occurred and what was being done to help the victims, President Conde's wife, Pamela, approached, carrying one of her small children. Elder Nash asked Sister Conde how her children were. With a smile, she replied that through the goodness of God, they were all safe and well. He asked about the Conde's home. It's gone, she said simply. What about your belongings, he inquired. Everything was buried in the rubble of our home, Sister Conde replied. And yet, Elder Nash noted, you're smiling as we talk. Yes, she said, I've prayed and I'm at peace. We have all we need. We have each other. We have our children. We're sealed in the temple. We have this marvelous Church and we have the Lord. We can build again with the Lord's help. This tender demonstration of faith and spiritual strength is repeated in the lives of Saints across the world in many different settings. It is a simple illustration of a profound power that is much needed in our day and that will become increasingly crucial in the days ahead. We need strong Christians who can persevere against hardship, who can sustain hope through tragedy, who can lift others by their example and their compassion and who can consistently overcome temptations. We need strong Christians who can make important things happen by their faith and who can defend the truth of Jesus Christ against moral relativism and militant atheism. What is the source of such moral and spiritual power, and how do we obtain it? The source is God. Our access to that power is through our covenants with Him. A covenant is an agreement between God and man—an accord whose terms are set by God. In these divine agreements, God binds Himself to sustain, sanctify, and exalt us in return for our commitment to serve Him and keep His commandments. We enter into covenants by priesthood ordinances—sacred rituals that God has ordained for us to manifest our commitment. Our foundational covenant, for example, the one in which we pledge our willingness to take upon us the name of Christ, is confirmed by the ordinance of baptism. It is done individually, by name. By this ordinance we become part of the covenant people of the Lord and heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Other sacred ordinances are performed in temples built for that very purpose. If we are faithful to these covenants made there, we become inheritors not only of the celestial kingdom but of exaltation, the highest glory within the heavenly kingdom, and we obtain all the divine possibilities God can give. The scriptures speak of the New and Everlasting Covenant. The New and Everlasting Covenant is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the doctrines and commandments of the gospel constitute the substance of an everlasting covenant between God and man that is newly restored in each dispensation. If we were to state the new and everlasting covenant in one sentence, it would be this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus explained what it means to believe in Him. Now this is the commandment, or in other words, this is the covenant. Repent, all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me, and be baptized in my name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. What is it about making and keeping covenants with God that gives us the power to smile through hardships? To convert tribulation into triumph, to be anxiously engaged in a good cause and bring to pass much righteousness. First, as we walk in obedience to the principles and commandments of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we enjoy a continual flow of blessings promised by God in His covenant with us. Those blessings provide the resources we need to act rather than simply be acted upon. As we go through life, for example, the Lord's commandments in the Word of Wisdom regarding the care of our physical bodies bless us first and foremost with wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. Furthermore, they lead to a generally more healthy life and freedom from destructive addictions. Obedience gives us greater control over our lives, greater capacity to come and go, to work and create. Of course, age, accident, and illnesses inevitably take their toll, but even so, our obedience to this gospel law enhances our capacity to deal with these challenges. In the covenant path, we find a steady supply of gifts and help. Charity never faileth. Love begets love, compassion begets compassion, virtue begets virtue, commitment begets loyalty, and service begets joy. We are part of a covenant people, a community of saints who encourage, sustain, and minister to one another. As Nephi explained, "...and if it so be that the children of men keep the commandments of God, he doth nourish them and strengthen them." All this is not to say that life in the covenant is free of challenge or that the obedient soul should be surprised if disappointments or even disasters interrupt his peace. If you feel that personal righteousness should preclude all loss and suffering, you might want to have a chat with Job. This brings us to a second way in which our covenants supply strength. They produce the faith necessary to persevere and to do all things that are expedient in the Lord. Our willingness to take upon us the name of Christ and keep His commandments requires a degree of faith. But as we honor our covenants, that faith expands. In the first place, the promised fruits of obedience become evident, which confirms our faith. Secondly, the Spirit communicates God's pleasure, and we feel secure in His continued blessing and help. And thirdly, come what may, we can face life with hope and equanimity knowing that we will succeed in the end because we have God's promise to us individually by name and we know He cannot lie. Early Church leaders in this dispensation confirmed that adhering to the covenant path provides the reassurance we need in times of trial. It was the knowledge that their course in life conformed to the will of God that enabled the ancient saints to endure all their afflictions and persecutions and to take not only the spoiling of their goods and the wasting of their substance joyfully, but also to suffer death in its most horrid forms, knowing, not merely believing, that when this earthly house of their tabernacle was dissolved, they had a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens." They further pointed out that in offering whatever sacrifice God may require of us, we obtain the witness of the Spirit that our course is right and pleasing to God. With that knowledge, our faith becomes unbounded, having the assurance that God will in due time turn every affliction to our gain. Some of you have been sustained by that faith as you have endured fingers of scorn pointing from the great and spacious building crying shame, and you have stood firm with Peter. And the apostles of old rejoicing that you were counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. The Lord said of the church, Verily I say unto you, all among them who are willing to observe their covenants by sacrifice, yea, every sacrifice which I the Lord shall command, they are accepted of me. For I the Lord will cause them to bring forth as a very fruitful tree, planted in a goodly land. By a pure stream that yieldeth much precious fruit. The Apostle Paul understood that one who's entered into a covenant with God is both given the faith to face trials and gains even greater faith through those trials. Of his personal thorn in the flesh, he observed For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. We've considered first the empowering blessings— And second, the endowment of faith that God grants to those who keep their covenants with Him. A final aspect of strength through covenants that I'll mention is the bestowal of divine power. Our covenant commitment to Him will permit our Heavenly Father to let His divine influence, the power of godliness, flow into our lives. He can do that, because by our participation in priesthood ordinances we exercise our agency and elect to receive it. Our participation in those ordinances also demonstrates that we are prepared to accept the additional responsibility that comes with added light and spiritual power. In all the ordinances, especially those of the temple, we are endowed with power from on high. This power of godliness comes in the person and by the influence of the Holy Ghost. The gift of the Holy Ghost is part of the new and everlasting covenant. It is an essential part of our baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. It is the messenger of grace by which the blood of Christ is applied to take away our sins and sanctify us. It is the gift by which Adam was quickened in the inner man. It was by the Holy Ghost that the ancient apostles endured all that they endured and by their priesthood keys carried the gospel to the known world of their day. When we have entered into divine covenants, the Holy Ghost is our comforter, our guide, and our companion. The fruits of the Holy Spirit are the peaceable things of immortal glory, the truth of all things, that which quickeneth all things, which maketh alive all things— that which knoweth all things, and hath all power according to wisdom, mercy, truth, justice, and judgment. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are testimony, faith, knowledge, wisdom, revelations, miracles, healing, and charity, to name but a few. It is the Holy Ghost that bears witness of your words when you teach and testify. It is the Holy Ghost that, as you speak in hostile venues— puts into your heart what you should say, and fulfills the Lord's promise that you shall not be confounded before men. It is the Holy Ghost that reveals how you may clear the next seemingly insurmountable hurdle. It is by the Holy Ghost in you that others may feel the pure love of Christ and receive strength to press forward. It is also the Holy Ghost in His character as the Holy Spirit of promise that confirms the validity and efficacy of your covenants and seals God's promises upon you. Divine covenants make strong Christians. I urge each one to qualify for and receive all the priesthood ordinances you can and then faithfully keep the promises you have made by covenant. In times of distress, let your covenants be paramount and let your obedience be exact. Then you can ask in faith, nothing wavering, according to your need, and God will answer. He will sustain you as you work and watch. In His own time and way, He will stretch forth His hand to you, saying, Here am I. I testify that in The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is found the priesthood authority to administer the ordinances by which we can enter into binding covenants with our Heavenly Father in the name of His Holy Son. I testify that God will keep His promises to you as you honor your covenants with Him. He will bless you in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. He will strengthen and finish your faith. He will, by His Holy Spirit, fill you with godly power. I pray that you will always have His Spirit to be with you, to guide you, and deliver you from want, anxiety, and distress. I pray that through your covenants you may become a powerful instrument for good in the hands of Him who is our Lord and Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.